One of the very earliest Christian writings that we possess outside of the New Testament itself is called the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve. We don't know exactly when it was written, though most scholars think probably sometime in the first century, maybe late first century. But it gives us a window into what early Christians were thinking of, these first generations of Christians. And the way that the Didache begins is really fascinating. The first line is, talks about these two ways. There are two ways, it says, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between these two ways. And that might seem like a sort of strange way for an early Christian document to begin. Why not start talking about God or the gospel or Jesus? Why talk about two ways? But really, this isn't that surprising. After all, we know from the book of Acts that early Christians were referred to as followers of the way. We know that Jesus himself used the language of two ways. There is a narrow road and there is a wide road and you must choose between them. Or Jesus spoke of two ways of being, two ways of building a house, building a house on sand and building a house on stone. Jesus often used these images of two different ways of being, being sheep and being goats, being wheat and being chaff. The Apostle Paul likewise spoke of two ways to live, to live in the flesh or to live in the spirit. So this language of two ways isn't really that strange after all. And in fact, it goes back further than the New Testament, further than the teaching of Jesus. All the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, we find Moses talking about two ways to Israel that they must choose from. And again, in the book that we're studying right now, the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of Proverbs, we again find this language of two ways. In Proverbs chapter 4, for instance, we are told in verse 11 from this father who's instructing his son, he says, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in paths of uprightness. What the father wants to instruct his son about is the way of wisdom, the path, the road of uprightness. And then three verses later, he contrasts this with a different way. Do not enter the path of the wicked, he warns the son, and do not walk in the way of the evil. And this language of not entering the path of the wicked. As the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter points out, this language is very strong. In fact, it probably means something to the effect of, don't even think of setting foot on this path. Do not enter it. And then again, four verses later, the father uses the language of a way or a path when he talks about wisdom. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, he says. And then in the next verse, once again, he contrasts that with a different way. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. These are the two ways that Proverbs offers. And in many ways, I think you could say that this section of Proverbs from chapter 1 through chapter 9 is a constant appeal to choose the way of wisdom over this other way, the way of folly, the way of foolishness. These are two ways. And as the Didache says, the difference between them is very great.
all of this talk of two ways kind of finally comes to a head at the very end of this section, the last three chapters, chapters seven through nine, where we find a series of speeches and discussions about these two women, Lady Wisdom and Madam Folly. We're first introduced to Lady Wisdom in chapter one, where she makes her first big speech, her first appeal to those who are seeking wisdom. And she has three different speeches, actually. The one in chapter one, a very long speech in chapter eight, and then she speaks again in chapter nine. Each time, the voice of Lady Wisdom is the voice of wisdom itself, crying out to any who would listen, asking them to come follow her in the way that she is offering, in the wisdom that she is offering, how she is suggesting you live in the world. But Lady Wisdom isn't the only voice speaking. There's also Madame Folly. We encounter her first in chapter seven, and chapter seven is, begins with the father talking once again. And then the father tells a story as he watches a young man who is led astray by a seductive adulteress in the town. And this adulteress is sort of foolishness, folly embodied. We meet her again at the very end of chapter nine. After Lady Wisdom speaks, she's followed by another voice, Madame Folly, making her own appeal. What Proverbs recognizes with these two women is that wisdom and folly are making constant appeals to us at all times, and we need to learn how to discern their voices. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to look at Lady Wisdom and Madame Folly. I want to think about what is it that distinguishes them? What's distinctive about the ways that they offer and the types of knowledge that they ask us to seek? And I also want to ask the question of what do they share in common? And what does the common way that they make their appeal to us, what does it tell us about ourselves, about wisdom, and about how to live wisely in this world? So that's what I'm going to focus on. How are Lady Wisdom and Madame Folly different? And what do they share in common? Let me start off by talking about one difference I see, one observation of the difference between Lady Wisdom and Madame Folly. And that is the difference of public versus secret knowledge. Here's what I mean. Lady Wisdom makes an appeal to knowledge that's very public. In chapter one and in chapter eight, the, her speech itself is made in the most public place possible. And she invites everyone to, to listen to her speak in public. What she says is readily available. She's not trying to hide it. She's appealing to public truth. She also, in chapter eight, appeals to creation. Wisdom says that she was present in creation with God at the very beginning. And all throughout the book of Proverbs, we see that Wisdom makes a constant appeal to the order of creation. Go to the ants, as I mentioned last week in chapter six. Many times, wisdom appeals to creation and it is telling us that there is a public truth that's recognizable that we can see 
by paying attention to the created order, that we can live, as I put it last week, with the grain of the universe, with the grain of creation, instead of against it. And wisdom is also available, she says in chapter 8, verse 17. She is available to all of those who seek her. She's not trying to hide herself. And this is very different from folly. Folly, too, offers a sort of knowledge, you might say, but the knowledge that folly offers is a secret knowledge. Folly invites a young man who is simple and naive to come and, and to, to share with her a secret moment of pleasure, something that is hidden, something that no one else will know. Folly says that the husband, the man who lives with her is away, and she has no fear of of the consequences, and she invites this young man into a secret understanding. In chapter 9, Folly invites those who are passing by her house on public streets to come into the confines of her home to enjoy bread eaten in secret that she says is sweet. So the appeal of Folly is an appeal to a type of knowledge and to a type of pleasure, but it's a secret knowledge, a hidden knowledge, something that only a few can find, very different from Lady Wisdom, who publicly offers her wisdom to any who would listen, who appeals to creation, who appeals to public truth. Leslie Newbigin, the great bishop and theologian of the past century, often spoke of the gospel as a public truth. The gospel is a truth that was proclaimed because it is a universal truth, because it says something true about the world, about the way things are. And he contrasted that with the idea that, that the gospel or that religion can be a matter of private individual concern. But Leslie Newbigin wasn't the first one to notice that many people today are led to seek out a kind of secret, hidden truth. And he wasn't the first one to have to struggle with this problem. In fact, one of the earliest heresies that the Christian church had to face was a heresy called Gnosticism. It's after this Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Gnosticism took a variety of different forms and it was present in both Jewish and Christian communities. But at its heart, what all Gnostics shared was an appeal to a secret knowledge. Only the few can know. You have to learn it from certain teachers, those who are really aware of what's going on. To Tertullian, who lived in the second century and who fought the Gnostics, here is how he described them. Not even to their own disciples, Tertullian says, do they commit a secret before they have made sure of them. They have the knack of persuading men before instructing them. Yet truth persuades by teaching. It does not teach by first persuading. So Gnosticism is a very old heresy, but it's also a very new heresy in many ways. Today, we continue to see the appeal to a secret hidden knowledge. Conspiracy theories these days are rampant. So many of us gravitate toward trying to find that one person, that one source of truth, who can unlock the key to let us know what's really going on behind the scenes. Today, we seem dissatisfied with public truth, 
publicly available wisdom. We seek out secret knowledge, and we think that we can find salvation that way. So that's the first distinction between folly and wisdom. Wisdom appeals to public truth. Folly appeals to secret, hidden knowledge. Now, the second observation I would make about the difference between these two ways is that wisdom appeals to delayed gratification, whereas folly seeks to offer us instant gratification. Take, for example, what folly says in chapter 7. She seizes the young man and kisses him. With bold face, she says, Come, let us take our love, fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. The offer of folly is an offer of instant gratification. No need to delay. Come now, come immediately, she says. The man is away from the house. Let's enjoy one another while we can. Wisdom also appeals to a gratification of sorts, but of a different way. In chapter 8, wisdom says, Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. Wisdom is offering instruction and knowledge, and she recognizes that these two are goods. These give us something to be enjoyed. But she contrasts them with the more immediate pleasure of silver and gold. Similarly, at the end of chapter 8, she says, Riches and honor are with me, with wisdom, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. Again, wisdom says that gratification is with her. All who would follow her way would find true joy. But... In order to do so, they must set aside the more instant pleasures of silver and gold. This reminds me, this idea of instant versus delayed gratification. This is kind of contemporary language to use in talking about Proverbs. And it reminds me of the famous experiment done in 1972, done by the Stanford psychologist Walter Michel. You might be familiar with it. It's called the Marshmallow Experiment. And it's pretty simple. Michelle wanted to test and see how well children at certain ages would do in being able to delay gratification. And so he gave them a very simple task. They were given a marshmallow, a delicious looking marshmallow set right in front of them. And each child was told that you can have this marshmallow right now, but if you wait until I return in 15 minutes, then you'll get two marshmallows. And then Michelle watched as these kids struggled, some of them coming up with the most elaborate ways possible to trick themselves into thinking the marshmallow wasn't real, telling themselves stories, uh, trying to tell themselves reminders, admonishing themselves not to eat the marshmallow, do anything they can to try to exercise self-control. It was interesting as Michelle watched as these kids grew older and kept up with them, is that those who were successful at delaying gratification, those who had enough self-control to wait for the two marshmallows instead of the one, they ended up being much more successful in life. 
those who could wait and not take the instant gratification, they found the deeper pleasure that wisdom offers. C.S. Lewis recognizes this as well. And in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, he talks about how we as Christians think about desire and gratification. And the mistake that he says we often make is to think that the Bible doesn't offer us gratification or desire. The Bible doesn't offer us or ask us to seek after true joy, but instead tells us not to seek gratification. The answer, however, is something very different for Lewis. Here's how he puts it. If there lurks in most modern minds, he says, the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What Lewis is observing here is very similar to what we see in this contrast between Lady Wisdom and Madame Folly, this contrast between these two ways of wisdom and folly in the book of Proverbs. And that is that wisdom, the way of wisdom, does not tell us that our desires are too strong, but rather that they are too weak. Yes, we could listen to the voice of Madame Folly. Yes, we could find instant gratification and immediate pleasure, but at what cost? The voice of wisdom says, I have something much greater, much deeper to offer you. Listen to my voice and you will find the joy that you truly seek. And this observation about the difference between instant and delayed gratification it brings me to what I want to say about what wisdom and folly share in common, what I'm going to call their common appeal, the common way that they are making their appeal. Throughout all these speeches, they've been calling out, asking us to follow them on their way. And there are many differences between wisdom and folly as we'll continue to study in this course. At the same time, if you look at the way that they make their appeal, it's actually very similar. Take, for instance, chapter 9, where you have these two speeches given. Here is what Folly says in verses 16 and 17. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, Folly says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now compare this to what Lady Wisdom says just a couple verses before. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, wisdom says, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live, and walk in the way of insight. You see, what wisdom and folly share in common is that both of them are appealing to our desire. 
Both of them are offering good food, something sweet, something to be enjoyed. Both of them are appealing to us and inviting us to come and be with them and follow them on their way. And the way that they're appealing to us is that they're appealing to our desire. And this is because both wisdom and folly understand something very fundamental about us, something that we often miss ourselves. The philosopher James K.A. Smith has written quite a number of books to argue that many times we often think of ourselves as primarily rational beings. What was it that the philosopher Descartes said? Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. But what Smith points out is this is actually a mistaken way to think about ourselves. The way that we make decisions and the way that we orient ourselves toward life is often not driven primarily by the way that we think, but by what we want. We are, as Smith puts it, quoting St. Augustine, a bundle of loves. We are creatures who are primarily, primarily oriented to the world by our desire, by what we love. Here's how Smith puts it in his book. To be human is to be animated and oriented by some vision of the good life some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. This is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. Our most fundamental orientation to the world is through love, through what we want, through what we desire, through what we think of as the good life, what we think it means to flourish. And this is a really important point, not only because this is something that folly and wisdom obviously understand about us. It's why they both make their appeal by presenting something that ought to seem like the good life to us, by presenting their visions of flourishing. Aristotle himself said that all human beings are driven primarily by what they think will bring them happiness. This is what dictates the way that we live and the decisions that we make. That we are creatures who seek happiness, that we are oriented to the world in love. And this is an important point to understand, not only because as we read Proverbs, we recognize that both wisdom and folly are appealing to our desires. It's important because as Smith points out in his book, so often our desires, what we love, is shaped not by how we think, but by the habits and the rhythms of our lives. We spend our days in environments that are constantly appealing to us on the level of desire. Take, for instance, the shopping mall, one of Smith's favorite examples. He calls it a secular liturgy. It's a place where our desires, where our wants, our loves are shaped, where we get a vision of this is what the good life is. Walking into a shopping mall is hearing a voice calling out to us. And it's up to us as Christians to understand and to be able to discern, is this the voice of wisdom or is it the voice of folly that is appealing to us? Smith also talks about environments like being in a sports stadium in a giant crowd and the way that it can impact us. Or even the, the suburbs and the streets and where we, where we live, the houses that we're surrounded by, the cars that our neighbors have. In every way, 
our desire is being appealed to. We're being offered different visions, rival visions, as he calls them, of happiness, of the good life. Our loves and longings are steered wrong, he says, not because we've been hoodwinked by bad ideas, but because we've been immersed in deformative liturgies and not realized it. As a result, we absorb a very different story about the goal of being human and the norms for flourishing. We start to live toward a rival understanding of the good life. I think that the point Smith is making here is very important to us if we want to follow the wisdom that's offered to us in Proverbs, if we want to live well, live wisely. And the reason is because when we read these speeches of Lady Wisdom and Madame Folly, we can easily begin to think that these are simply speeches from another time, or that maybe these are two women whose voices are easily recognizable and we ourselves know when wisdom and folly are before us. I think the truth, however, is that these two voices of wisdom and folly continue to cry out and often do so in ways that we don't recognize because they appeal to us on the level of desire, because we are constantly being presented with visions of the good life. This is what will make you happy. This is what will take all your problems away. Quick, enjoy this. Here is some secret knowledge for you. And in order for us to avoid the way of folly and to walk on the path of wisdom, we have to be able to recognize how our desire, how our loves are being appealed to. I want to thank you again for joining us tonight in this study of wisdom. I hope that you've benefited as much as I have from thinking about these two ways, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. And I pray that God will use this study to help you recognize these voices in your own life so that you can choose the way of life, the way of wisdom. 